0: It's a Q's conversation with Syracuse University alumna, Mindy Freed, a sociologist, a teacher, and author, and the creator, producer, and host of The Shape of Care, a podcast that tackles the many issues associated with elder care and caregiving in this country.
1: Generally, we live in a culture, you know, an ageist culture in which uh, youth, especially through the commercial world is kind of glorified. And yeah, we don't want to acknowledge that we have wrinkles or that we, you know, forget somebody's name or whatever, you know, some of those things that are sort of normal parts of aging. And what's really important is that we try and break some of those unspoken rules and start having conversations within families about the experience of aging and decline um, and and just be honest about it.
0: Glad you're listening, I'm Chris Velarde. It's a conversation that may hit home for a lot of you. It's such an important topic that's affecting or will affect so many families. Mindy approaches her work and this issue through the lens of both her education as a sociologist and her experience as a caregiver for her father before he passed away about a decade ago.
1: Well, I think, you know, like a lot of, of work that we do, um, the inroad that I had to it was through a personal experience. But then I, as a sociologist, I couldn't help but bring a sociological eye to that experience. So, you know, when my my father passed away over 10 years ago now, um, he was almost 98. And before he died, he, you know, he, he had a very full and rich life. But in the last year and a half, he was on a major decline. And my sister and I shared the care of him. And he lived in Buffalo, which is where I grew up and my sister was living in is living in pittsburgh and i live in boston and so the two of us between the two of us we basically were with him every single weekend um you know (laughs) we had moved him into an assisted living facility after he was living independently for many years and doing really well but you know as you mentioned before we got on air um, he had a fall and that is the number one reason why people end up going into some kind of an institutional facility Um, but you know we we had some foresight we had spent a bunch of time my sister and i looking at a variety of places and we found some place in buffalo that we we liked um, well enough and he was absolutely resistant but after he fell you know, there was so many underlying things going on that there was no option but to um, move him there. And he was welcoming of it at that point yeah. in time. Um, so over that period of time, of a year and a half that we cared for him, I was uh, putting on my sociological eye and kind of considered it both a personal experience, but also um, sort of an ethnographic research study In a way that, you know, I was observing the power dynamics within the institution, how places, how it was laid out, what the other residents were like, the relationships that they had to one another, the the kind of the the norms of how things operated. And I ended up, after my dad died, writing a book uh, called Caring for Red, which was... um, both uh, an ethnography, because I'd spent all that time looking at the experience and being in it, um, and also a memoir about the experience of caring for him. And um, we had been very close, we had a complex relationship, like I think a lot of uh, adult children do. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be able to capture that and and just not gloss over it. And so Caring for Red was really that story. Um, And then I ended up spending the next year and a half over it next year and a half doing 27 book talks all over the country. And that experience was a real wake up call for me because I could see that my personal experience was also a universal experience.
0: That's exactly what what I I was going to ask you about is in sharing your story of your experiences and and having you know for background my wife and I have been caring for um, my wife's mother who is in her 90s she's been living with us um, since just before the pandemic and her father-in-law I'm sorry her father my father-in-law was in a nursing home uh, in the Syracuse area as well and uh until he passed a couple of weeks ago so so that type of dynamic when you're in it you're living it right and you're experiencing it through the person you're caring for through yourself through members of your family but when you have an opportunity to go out and and in your case give those book talks you found that there were a lot of common threads I'm sure
1: oh absolutely Um, I spoke in, you know, I spoke to people at all age levels and backgrounds. So I was in university classrooms, in book festivals and bookstores, synagogues, other kinds of faith-based institutions, and, um, you know, I I have to say that I kind of got tired of telling my own story. Uh, okay. I get it. I know it. uh, Um, but in hearing other people's stories, um, I've, it was fascinating to hear the kinds of struggles that people had. Um, you know, I happened to have a lucky situation in which my sister and I worked really well together, but I heard many stories about siblings who did not work well together in caring for a, a parent or, or whatever. Um, I heard stories of people caring for spouses and mm. the, the sort of the painful experience of caring for somebody with a degenerative disease. Uh, I heard stories about um, you know from people of different uh sort of socio-economic backgrounds uh with you know varying degrees of being able to navigate a very complicated system with not enough money to be able to pay for the kind of care that they needed and wanted so so yeah it was that part was so brilliant and i'd say after doing that travel which you know gets tiring after a while you know because it wasn't my job i had other paid work that i was trying to juggle with it um i thought that i would try and do something that allowed me to deal with the stories look into those stories in a more kind of broad way and that was podcasting
0: yeah And, and, uh, you know, again, this is beyond just sharing your story, this is finding those common threads, but each one of these circumstances is unique and individual in its own way. And so this is why I, I hesitate to ask this question, but also feel the need to ask the question. (laughs) If, if there is a family, you know, maybe, um, you know, an adult who's looking at their parents and seeing them aging. And, and thinking, wow, we may be going down this road. Is there some type of preparation, some type of based on your experiences and also your, this, the stories you, you've heard and your observations, is there something that that families can do to prepare for this?
1: Mm. Well, I think that first of all, we live in a culture where people don't like to talk about death and dying or, or decline and uh, I think that we need to really challenge that kind of presumption or that kind of fear that we have uh, about speaking openly with people that we love about what is a natural part of, of life, which is decline and you know aging and eventually uh, leaving this universe. And um, I mean, there's different cultural approaches that people have. Uh, to that experience, but generally we live in a culture, you know, an ageist culture in which uh, youth, especially through the commercial world, is kind of glorified and, you know, we don't want to acknowledge that we have wrinkles or that we, you know, forget somebody's name or whatever, you know, some of those things that are sort of normal parts of aging, um, you know, So I think that, you know, back to your question, what's really important is that we try and break some of those unspoken rules and start having conversations within families about the experience of aging and decline, Mm -hmm. Um, and and just be honest about it. You know, I know with, with my own daughter at one point, she's in her early 30s and you know my spouse is an amazing cook and i'm not and so i was just you know using the example of my crappy cooking as a way into talking about what i might what i might do if i were to survive you know beyond the time when my my husband does so um i just was sort of joking around about how I better look at all those recipe books and figure out (laughs) how to do this and she laughed about it but underlying that is a reality that you know somebody's going to go first and um, hopefully not for another 20 25 30 years who knows (laughs) Um, but I think it is important to talk about those things and and to think also I do think that the advice that I have been given um, by experts is to start thinking about the kinds of support that you want. Um, most, most, most people want to stay in their own homes, um, or as in a case like what you have in a multi-generational home, where you're yeah. able to care for your mother, your mother-in-law. Um, nobody says, "Gosh, I hope when I get older, I can live in a nursing home," you know.
0: Right. Um,
1: and there, you know, there are some major problems with institutional care. So I'll just stop right there. But I'd say talk about it, you know, yeah. talk about it, normalize the conversation. And that's well, the way to go.
0: You know, and I think, as you mentioned, talking about something that maybe isn't quite as heavy as some of the things you can talk about, like cooking yeah. is, is a good door opener. It's a good start to the conversation because, yeah, it's real. But it's not quite those heavy topics that, you know, you might be able to talk about one thing and then you're done, right? Yeah. You can you can start there and then kind of it, it may shift in other directions and, and move. and um, you know, and I think there's just so many layers to it that it's not <laughs> one conversation. It's going to be multiple ongoing conversations about all those layers. Exactly. One of the parts of it that that is a reality for many families when they are in a situation like this is, okay, what does that mean for my job? Mm-hmm. And how do I balance those things? How do I find a way to, you know, not let my, my work down and not, you know, let my family down, whether that's the older parent I'm caring for, maybe the younger children I'm also trying to care for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know you've you've kind of spent some time looking into that that world of family care and, you know, have we gotten better in this country about it um, wh- where where do you see us uh, in terms of allowing for those types of situations
1: uh, have we gotten better you know ironically because of the pandemic um, so many people are working remotely and that's become more acceptable more normal um, I did a study in 2000 was released um, in which I uh, looked at five fortune 500 companies and their approach to flexible work policies and the companies wanted to know you know is this going to be okay for the bottom line and are our workers happier and those two things are connected and you know the time when we released the findings from the study it seemed pretty revolutionary (laughs) and there was so much resistance Uh, and you know people would just talk about workers would talk about um how you know their being able to work at home on a couple of days a week or work flexibly was really resented by their co-workers. If they got a promotion, it was really resented. Some yes. of that has shifted. Okay, yeah. um, has the workplace changed dramatically to accommodate people's needs? Um, it kind of depends on what kind of work people are doing. There's some kind of work where people can't work flexibly. Uh, And, you know, people who are in those kinds of jobs really still struggle and suffer with that balance. Um, We still don't have a paid family leave policy in the U.S. You know, we're we're one of the very few Western industrial countries without that kind of policy. I mean, my initial early in earlier in my career, I studied parental leave and wrote about that. Mm -hmm. You know, now I'm looking at leave for elder care and it's the same story. Things are really not. Uh, not where they need to be. So we need we need a paid leave policy that's longer than you know the the a 12 week unpaid leave policy we have now. It can't be company by company. That's not acceptable. Uh, we need to have. Um, uh, you know, flexible work policies, um, everything from telecommuting, which people are doing more of now, but also flexible work hours and shared work. And then people also, I mean, we don't often think about this when we're talking about those kinds of family policies, but there's an enormous wage gap in this country. Women earn less than men still, and people of color earn less than, uh, you know, in comparison to white people or white men. So that also needs to be equalized, looked at. And, and the other thing I'll just add is that um, there is a caregiving penalty in this country from a, a wage perspective. And um, if you are earning less in your younger years, that will then play out in terms of the kind of social security income you get when you're older mm-hmm. so being poor when you're young can lead to being poor when you're older so those are there's so many policies we need to look at and those are just a few
0: so many layers and and you talk about the, the flexible work policies and remote work and those things and you know and i think some companies are are seeing that those are things that employees or potential employees are absolutely considering when it comes to do i take this job or that job do i is this the opportunity for me or is that the opportunity but across the board there's not a lot of consistency there's a lot of kind of you know wild west
1: that's right that's right and so i mean i think that you're pointing out something really important that um you know i i did a an ethnographic study of a uh, financial services company um which uh had a fantastic uh child care center and you know i called it a kitty condo you know people <laughs> would choose to work there because they had a great child care center yep. people would not want to leave their jobs because of that child care center but it did you know it wasn't that center was not the whole picture you had to look at workplace policies and culture um because it wasn't necessarily true that people loved working there but they were stuck there so
0: that, yeah, the one benefit see. outweighed everything else exactly yeah well and you know when when you're the parent of a young child and and sometimes that becomes the most important priority yeah um, right when you're considering all of the pieces and uh you know i it, it's uh it's an interesting thing but as you as you pointed out when you're the parent who is caring for a parent that may become equally important at a different time when when you're at a different stage in your career absolutely yeah it's it's uh it's fascinating and there are there are just so many layers um, that that are involved, that, are, that play into this, uh, right. you know, from company policy to government policy to familial relationships. I mean, there's just so much that uh, right. that is at stake
1: and, here. And I think, you know, I, I'm glad that you just said that, because I think that when people are in a situation, and now just talking about elder care, where they have to figure out how to... Sort uh, of navigate the system. It is not easy. It yeah. is daunting. And mm-hmm. people uh, often are, you know, they're in this situation alone. So part of the problem is that Medicaid um, is actually not, you know, it, it serves people who are low income. And if you are well resourced, you can then afford to get care, whether it's home care or some kind of nice, you know, institutional facility, whatever. Um, Everybody in the middle, so that's working class people, middle class people, and there's millions of people, um, are really without any financial support. And so people end up impoverishing themselves mm-hmm. in order to support a loved one because they just, you know, there's no supports out there.
0: Yeah. And 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 look, that person who's impoverishing themselves to support a loved one may be in that similar situation of the loved one in 25 30 exactly. you know 35 years and and then where are we it's uh
1: yeah exactly yeah. because basically you know Medicaid right now and this is not the the fun cool stuff but it's the reality <laughs> that you know we have this this program Medicaid which pays it primarily pays the bulk of um, the cost of nursing home care for low-income people and then there's this sort of wild and wacky uh, waiver system state by state where' people can apply to their states to get a waiver to use medicaid money for home care hmm. to bring somebody into the home to help them out and you know who knows how to do that and where do you go to find out there actually is this whole infrastructure called area agencies on aging triple not the yeah. kind for cars but the kind <laughs> for care um and they exist all over the country so if you're in any part of the country, you can look up your Area Agency on Aging, go to them, and they hopefully will help you navigate the system. But most people don't even know that that exists.
0: They they don't know where the resource is to help them find the resources they need to (laughs) to make it all happen.
1: Exactly. And there is one of the things in in my current season, um, I feature an incredibly innovative program out in Washington State called wa cares um, wa cares is the first publicly run social insurance long-term care program so basically if you have put money into the system just like Social Security or Medicare if you put money into the system through your job you're then eligible to get money towards any kind of uh, home you know uh, long-term care supports uh, and services that you need, they're just starting it now, and so in a few years, they'll act, people will start to be able to reap those benefits. But they can get up to thirty-six thousand dollars, thirty-six plus thousand dollars over the year, over the, the a lifetime rather. And um, you know, it's uh, it's an incredible program, and there's other states that are considering doing that outside of the Medicaid system. So you don't have to be really poor to yeah. access it.
0: You just have to know it exists and know where to find it, and,
1: and yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. All that. All of that right? And <laughs> exactly. and, uh,
0: and and that as as we have found can be a full time job just mm. just trying to to track all of that stuff down.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. This is a Cuse Conversations podcast, so we would be remiss if we don't talk about Syracuse <laughs> a little bit. Absolutely. So, so let me ask you, going back, what was it that drew you? To Syracuse um, when when you were making those those decisions.
1: So um, I have to say it's pretty simple. My sister went to Syracuse. <laughs> We, we love
0: stories like that <laughs> simple fine
1: yeah um we've been talking know, about heavy
0: things so simple's actually good probably yeah. for this conversation. Simple's
1: good uh you know she she loved syracuse university um and she's a lot older than i am i mean i would say eight and a half years older not that much older but when i was a, a very young kid i got to go visit her and i got to be the kid who was with her older sister hanging out, meeting all her friends and going to M street and all those, you know, fun things. And I was enamored. And so I really hardly gave it a thought, you know, I applied to Syracuse as my first choice and a couple other places that I didn't really care about. And, um, it was kind of fantastic. I loved, I loved being there. And, um, in the tradition, I have, I have a, best friend who's like a sister to me. We grew Mm -hmm. up. We knew each other from age five on. She followed me. She was a year younger than me, and she came the next year. So Ah. um, I ended up, you know, after finishing my undergraduate degree, um, I left Syracuse for a teeny bit, um, came back and did a master's in social work um, at SU and then settled in. So I was there for a total of 12 years, Um, really wasn't until 19. 80 that I decided to make the big move and leave (laughs) mama (laughs) It felt like such a you know comforting home it was really hard but um to move to Boston for a variety of reasons as
0: as someone who has that in your family with with your sister um and then your own experience and, and kind of that that thing that central New York and Syracuse tend to do which is they, they hold on to you. They grab you yeah. and they, and they keep you around a little bit. <laughs> right. Um, what is, what, what has been your relationship with the university? What does it mean? Are there times in Boston where something happens or you see someone and and suddenly that all of that orange kind of comes back?
1: Mm. uh, I think it would have to be, um, certain professors are still kind of in me, um, mm you know, the, the, there was this duo um, named Wiggins and Miller, who taught a religion class, it was my freshman year, and it was a lecture hall. And I really, I will never forget the experience of being in this enormous lecture hall. And the two of them, um, you know, we it was stadium style. So we were looking down at them on the stage, and the two of them would debate uh, theological issues. And um i I, it just took my breath away i was just so blown away with with the all the thoughts that came kind of piling in that so that you know those kinds of um memories are really still in me Um, you know the the amount of reading that i did uh, in literature classes i will never forget some of those classes and some of those professors i feel really grateful um Mm -hmm. that it got me in it it be I became a reader because of that, so that's something that I still hold on, and and also I think just because the I'm still in touch with a lot of my old friends right. from Syracuse, and uh, it's just really fascinating to see the direction they've gone in. Some of them are not too far from you know in the Boston area, so um, it's just. Uh, I don't know. It was it was something special, and and you know, plus the fact that this person that I mentioned, who's like a sister to me, is still very much in my life, and so we still have Syracuse memories together.
0: Yeah. Do you find I I know you you've taught and and lectured at colleges. Do Do you find yourself kind of drawing from some of those professors who who stood out to you?
1: Uh, yeah. I think I think especially when I ended up. (laughs) when i ended up selecting a major i was a psych psych, social work major and um i think that some some of the small group stuff that i experienced you know the kinds of conversations that we had were really meaningful and um you know i also i i ended up um when i was in the msw program i ended up doing uh an independent study with a gestalt psychologist named sam grafef who's probably still out there in the world somewhere (laughs) you know um he was you know a really wonderful mentor to me and that that i hold on to that just that kind of one-on-one mentoring that i got from him i worked closely with uh, this guy jonathan friedman um, also a professor at the time who's passed away now um, who ended up well you know he he very much uh, nurtured my career hmm. um you know i when i ended up going back to the msw program he was a huge support um actually he was one of my recommendations for getting into the phd program that i went to at brandeis turned out i had no idea that he had a phd from brandeis in sociology <laughs> um so yeah a lot of those, a lot of those folks kind of have still remained or remained in my life beyond the years that i was at su
0: yeah, it, it's amazing how how those um, those branches continue to grow and continue to to make those connections throughout your life um, and, and just, you know, stay in touch. The the idea that your friends, you're still in touch with them. I mean, that's you know, that's just a, the, the kind of the kind of experience, um, social, educational at all kind of uh, kind of ties together yeah. Um where, where, where do you see yourself now? I mean, you're an author, you're a speaker, you're a consultant, you're a podcaster. I mean, this, this is quite a quite a nice life you've built here. <laughs>
1: um, it's kind of the bibbidi-bobbi-boo method of <laughs> career building. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um, I'd say, you know, right now, um, I did run this consulting um, practice for well over 20 years. And I mostly what I was doing was evaluation research, um, and I'm really grateful that I had that experience. I, I'm doing less of that now, um, but I, I do <laughs> I, I do like to do a lot of things. So, <laughs> you know, I, I there's a bit of a juggling act going on. Um, one of the projects that I just want to mention, which is really exciting. Um, some people might recall um, a book called Our Bodies Ourselves, which came out in the 1970s and had kind of its heyday over those years and then um, kind of faded out of existence, no longer was being published. Um, one of my sociology friends and colleagues who teaches at Suffolk um, brought the project over to Suffolk and raised uh, a lot of money and was a, we were and pulled me on board along with a lot of other people. We were able to launch, just this past Thursday, an online resor- resource called Our Bodies, Ourselves Today, that is so incredibly timely and important. Um, there's nine topic areas that we're taking on initially. The thing that I'm doing, not surprisingly, is called Growing Older. <laughs> <laughs> but we take on issues like uh, abortion, contraception, gender-based violence, mental health heart health um, so many different issues that are really prescient in today's world and so if people are interested in taking a look it's it's just a it's a click away it's you know (laughs) our bodies ourselves today it's really worth checking out it's a brilliant resource and and i'm very i'm honored to be a part of that um the other thing that that i've been working on um i i co started a a small nonprofit called Hoopla Productions. And we started developing, um, producing kind of neighborhood type uh, arts based events. Um, But the latest thing that we're doing is it's called finding home. Immigrant stories and music from Boston and beyond, and we're producing an event this coming Saturday. So you know, uh, <laughs> help! You know, there's so many pieces to pull together, but it's uh, 25 artists coming together in East Boston, which is one of the, was one of the major ports where people uh, from immigrants from other countries entered this this country, this city, and so we're telling those stories through uh, music, dance, and storytelling. So that's that's also been Kind of on my mind, and it's it's
0: also very clear that that you appreciate kind of the learning aspect of life, always learning, always experiencing, observing, and and processing, and you know, and, and kind of moving forward. And that's that tends to to send people in the bibbity bobbity boo directions. I think <laughs> once in a while, right? It's yeah. Oh, I've I've learned here, but I I'm, I'm curious about that too, and I want to you know right. I want to. Do that. So
1: right, depressing. that's true. I mean, I have to say I didn't know anything about podcasting when I started, but in the Boston area, um, we have this place called the PRX Podcast Garage, which is kind of an incubator organization that has a studio and workshops to help new people like me at the time learn how to be a podcaster. And so, you know, um, Taking on new things, as they say, as you get older, is uh, keeps those brain cells alive. And so, you know, it's it's fun to, to do stuff that you don't know how to do. That
0: it is. My thanks again to Mindy Freed. I encourage you to check out her podcast, The Shape of Care. There's a link in the description to this episode. And I hope you'll subscribe to the Q's Conversations podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening.
1: I'm Chris Velarde. Go Orange.